accept as the uh, Word of God, total, complete, verbally inspired, and one that's lasting forever. We know that. We believe that to be true. And then secondly, we want to spend our time in the rest of this, uh, this class and in others to come, the, uh, the time to really look at the church. Can we go back in biblical studies to see how the church was in the first century? Is it possible for us today to evaluate the church by looking at the scripture, seeing how it was uh, operated, how it was, was under the leadership of the apostles, guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Can we go back today and renew, find again that New Testament church as we read about it in the Bible? I know we live in a world today that changes a lot. I can just think back to many times <coughs> of when I was young and think about how uh, we had no concept of what, what it was going to be like. I've often said, how could I explain to my father this phone that I have on my belt? Now, the phones we had then were not, not the kind you'd put on your belt. They were phones that hung on the wall, and you had to listen to what, which ring you were getting. You know, one, two, three, four, maybe five or six people on the party line. And I can remember many times getting in trouble, listening in on somebody on the party line. We, I'm saying all that to say the world changes. Things are different now. That's why I think it's important for us to stop and think for a moment. Can we go back to the New Testament times, look at what the Bible has to say, and find the New Testament church? We know things have changed. We, we know as far as people in this world has changed, their concept of the church has changed a lot too. Is that what should be done? We spent some time in talking about the church and the nature of the church last week. We talked about the building. We talked about the, as the bride of Christ. We talked about the fact that the church being what Jesus himself built, what he brought forth. And I want us to continue a little bit talking about the nature of the church. Because we need to find that out before we can began to pattern ourselves after what the New Testament taught, not what our world has decided. We're not trying to follow the pattern of thoughts of someone other than the New Testament. We want the Word of God. One that we can believe, as I said a moment ago, verbally inspired. The answer to every question we have religiously is found in the New Testament in the Word of God. You know, the identification of the people that composed the New Testament church is Christ. If you really want to know what their nature was like, know what their expression was like, it was like Jesus. And you know, that identification is so close that 
what is done to Christ is done to His people. What is done to His people is done to Christ. That was true in the New Testament times. We can read in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through, 30, through 45, and understand that to be the fact. We can also understand that uh, in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, that when you persecute an individual, a member of the body of Christ, you're persecuting Jesus. That's exactly what we're taught there. And if we sin against another, another member of the body of Christ, we're sinning against Christ. If we sin against Christ, we're sinning against all of the followers, all of those who are Christians, those who are serving Him. Paul wrote, if we can change slide here. I guess it helps if I turn it on, Ruckin. There we go. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 8 and verse 12, when he talked about, but when you thus sin against brethren, you wound their weak conscience and sin against Christ. Keep that thought in mind. I want you to understand what we're talking about here. We're not talking about people that sin against Christ. He, Paul uh, tells us again, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, that you are the body of Christ and members individually. You are the body of Christ. We today, today now I, I speak from what I may know, and I hope that's not the case with you, but it's so easy today to drift away a little bit when we start trying with all the things going on in the world round about us and start so involved in activities and things there that we forget. We're in the image of Christ. We, we need to recognize that we belong to Jesus Christ. By that sense, we're trying to be what He is. It's the people of God that comprise the church. It's the people, the people who are in Christ Jesus. You see, I read one writer saying, the being of the people of God is grounded only in its God, and being the Christian community is only in Christ Jesus. Not in what I think, not in what I feel, not in what I sense, in Christ Jesus and what we can read about it. There was a people of God from... Abraham on, if you go through the Old Testament and read it, it's easy to find that. But you know, there is a body of Christ spoken of in the New Testament that comes only after the resurrection of Jesus. I like to think of some comparisons here. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. When we're baptized, we're, we're buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should be in the likeness, His likeness. Think about this now. Here is, did you realize that baptism is a reenactment of the death and burial of Jesus Christ? You die to sin. You, the old man of sin is, is put to death. 
You are buried with Him in water and you rise to walk in newness of life. Just in celebration, just in, in a, 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 an action that represents what Jesus did for us. A Christian knows God, but he knows God in Jesus Christ. He or she comes to God through Christ. No question about that. The church arises that, uh, through an encounter with Christ, and it begins in the, to experience the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice the phrase, in Christ and with Christ. Paul often uses that expression, in Christ, or in Him, or in whom, several times he uses it, referring to Christ. This phrase can carry various meanings in different contexts, and some of these are of special importance for the theme of the church and her relationship to Christ. In Christ sometimes carries the idea of incorporation. We have brought ourselves into being incorporated into Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you really stop and think about that verse for a moment? We know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we're sinners. We even today, even though we're trying to serve Jesus and doing a, a relatively good job of it, I hope, but we realize there are times when we make mistakes. We fall along the way. But do you realize the blood of Jesus Christ, according to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, keeps us clean? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins. And that word cleanses, in the original language, is a continuing sense. He keeps us clean. Therefore, this particular passage we're reading from Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation. If you're in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. Your sins have been removed. God has promised He would forget them. He cast them into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, I'll remove you from your sins. And, and, and on and on we could go. But there is another passage I want you to see. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. No condemnation. We're in Christ. We're where he is. Christ was the Son of God. We become the children of God. When we became Christians, when we were baptized into Christ, we became children of God. There, knowing that there is no, no condemnation, knowing that now we're in Christ as a new creation, is important to think too. We've put away that old man. We've turned away from our sin. We've buried that old man, and we've become a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. What a great blessing that is. What a interesting thought it is for us 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So in that he incorporated the person of himself into Christ, or incorporated Christ into himself, so that he is now Christ living in the flesh, we might become the righteousness of God. Not something we've done. We're not people who are totally righteous. As I said a moment ago, we make mistakes. We sin occasionally. Not intentionally, perhaps, but nonetheless we do. But now, you, you, you see, we can find that righteousness. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ has washed us clean. We're in Christ. We're with Christ. There's that new creation. For I have all of you are being one in Jesus Christ. We are one in Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 28. The idea may be present in the description of the, the churches there. Because he tells us in Galatians 1 and verse 22 that he was writing to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. We would probably re reword it a little bit and say we're he was writing to the churches of Christ that are in Judea. Same thing. We're talking about the fact that Jesus is the church. Now, that sphere of reference may be the thought here, as it is the description of individuals in Romans 16, 7. Paul, writing to the Romans, who were members of the body of Christ, said they were in Christ. They were Christians before I was. He's writing to people who knew Jesus before he did while he was still being a persecutor. These examples show the intimate relationship that we can have with Christ. The intimate relationship that Christ has with His people. Sometimes that phrase, in Christ, is equal to being in the church. It means the same thing. You see, death does not break this relationship of being in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16, Paul wrote that encouraging those people, talking about the dead who are in Christ. They're going to be raised. We're going to meet them again in the air to meet the Lord. Those uh, he describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 18, those who have died in Christ. The same as being with Christ. Same as being with our Lord. The state of being with Christ is a result of sharing the experience of dying with Him, rising with Him, and being glorified with Him, according to Romans chapter 6, 3 and 4, and chapter 8 and verse 17. Death and the resurrection forms that basis. It's... Uh, the participation in Christ's death and His resurrection that determines the new life and gives us the hope and the structure and enables us to, uh, to die with Christ and to rise with Him at His coming. And when we're talking about identification of people, His people, 
I want you to think about the expression that comes so often in so many places in the New Testament. So close is that identification what's done to Christ is done to His people. What is done to His people is done to Christ. However you want to say it. To persecute them is to persecute Him. And to sin against them is to sin against Him. We've said all of that. Even as Old Testament passages about people are applied to the New Testament in Christ. So a passage about the David king kingdom or Messiah as he was prophesying it is quoted in Acts chapter 4. Referring to Jesus as that Messiah that was to come. The action of the, the authorities against Jesus continued the threats against his disciples, the apostles. The act of baptism into Christ provides a basis for that identification of the baptized body today. So much so that the church can be identified with Christ. This idea of a close relationship, uh, shall we say a union with Christ of Christians, with Christ is best known from the description of the church as the body of Christ. And then two, I want you to notice the imagery of the body of Christ. There's been so much discussion in our times about the origin and significance of the phrase the body of Christ. I find most likely the background of the, to the Old Testament, the Jewish idea described as the corporate personality or extended personality, as some writers would put it. If the adoption of the terminology of the body was for the concept suggested by Paul as, and the Greek usage, I, I guess we might want to say, the content was still supplied by the Jewish way of thinking. And Paul's use of that language fits the Old Testament picture, the Old Testament ideas, the Old Testament understanding of a group derived from and finding their identity in one person. What we do with the New Testament, we take the New Testament and we find the language that are used there and we find that as the way of including in ourselves and defining the identity of Jesus and therefore taking that identity for ourselves. We're Christians. Israel was both the forefather of the people and the whole people itself. Do you remember Adam was both a person and he was humanity. So Jesus included all of his believers in himself. In this way of thinking of the body of Christ. It's more than simply a figure of speech or an image. But it expresses a real relationship for us. There should be nothing greater as far as in relationships than your relationship with Christ. Now we make some comparisons, and we're going to before we're finished tonight, but 
it's kind of a root metaphor here that, that describes the basic character and the basic nature of the church. Want to know what the church is like? What's Christ like? Want to know what Christ is like? What, well, the church today should be uh, imitating Christ for the world today. You see, the body finds its wholeness in Christ. The body of the church, the, the spiritual body of the, uh, of the Christians, finds its basic character in the, that very nature, the church itself. The body finds its wholeness in Christ. We can, I, I can say that a number of ways. While we're talking about the fullness of Christ should be found in our spiritual body. Now you think about it for a while. Are we, are we acting that way? All members are, according to the New Testament, are spiritually interrelated. We belong to each other. We're part of each other. Paul, when he wanted to describe the church and, and some of the special gifts and things of that nature, used the physical body to describe it. Christ is the head. And we compose the body. It may be a hand, it may be a foot, it may be an ear, it may be an eye, it may be a tooth, who knows? We're there to utilize the ability and the talents that are, give, are given to us. It takes all parts of the body for it to work right, doesn't it? We have to be able to use all portions or things just don't work well. If we want the church to be what Christ wants it to be, it needs to be and the fullness of the body of Christ here upon this earth. In the, although the body can never be separated from Christ, it often acts in ways that do not correspond to what the body of Christ ought to do. You see, the Corinthian church is one example of that. Paul had to write them with the first Corinthian letter, and he invokes the body language in there, their conduct, conduct hardly accords with what should be expected from the mystical body of Christ. It's considered in some sense as identical with himself. The church, according to Paul's language, must never be separated from Christ, nor must it ever be confused with Christ. And then secondly, I want you to notice the in Colossians, in Romans, let's go, let's, let me go back here just a minute. I want, I want you to see uh, I'll get there in a minute. I want you to see a couple of passages of Scripture. Romans, 1 Corinthians, dealing with that. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, for we as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many, being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. What, a, what an important thing it is to think that we compose a body. Paul was careful about writing that in 1 Corinthians and Paul was careful to writing that in, in Romans. Notice, notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? 
certainly not in a comparable way. We're looking at the sexual union, making a man and woman one flesh. That's, that's the marriage relationship. He who is joined to Christ makes him one person, one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17. But he who joined the Lord to the Lord is one spirit with him. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Same themes could be found in a number of places. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And where the latter one where Paul says you're now one, you're now the body of Christ and members individually. Now let's look at Colossians. Like Romans, like 1 Corinthians, Colossians and Ephesians identify the church with the body of Christ. Now, only expressly saying church the church, not merely we or you. But unlike them in the letter writings, Paul called Christ the head of the body, and even in this regard, as we shall see, there's a different application to the language of the head. When we read the word head, <coughs> we tend to think of the physical head. After all, that's pretty much what we know. We think of the physical head similar in some way to ours. But we also use the word head to describe the head of state, to describe the head of a business, in various other ways that we can think about it. And neither approach sets us on the right track for understanding Colossians and Ephesians. In the Jewish corporate personality, the head stood for the whole. Provides the link in the languages of 2 Corinthians and that of Colossians. Head also has a meaning, uh, other meanings that seem to provide a specific content of what's said in Colossians and Ephesians. Now, Colossians repeat, re repeats that phrase, one body. Colossians 3 and verse 15. One body. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Notice again in Colossians 1 and verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my, in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. Notice the emphasis again in Colossians 1 and verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things, in all things, he might have the preeminence. The firstborn from the dead, the church, had its uh, point of origin in Christ, no question about that. Had it not been for his crucifixion and his resurrection, there could have been no church. Now, because of the life and the message that Jesus gave us, because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we now have the basis from which we have the New Testament church. His death was an act of grace, which brought salvation and created saved people. 
The resurrection is the topic of Colossians 1 and verse 18. And one that Paul made him in the beginning point to a new people, those who share his victory over death, whatever God, wherever God acts for salvation of human beings, there's the church. The saving act of Christ is constituted by the church and continues the very nature of the church. Well, notice with me Ephesians. We know Colossians emphasizes the preeminence of Christ, and Ephesians marks the importance of the church. One meaning of the word head was first in rank. Leadership. First in authority. That meaning coincides with what's said in Ephesians about Christ as head of the church. But notice some of the ideas presented. Ephesians 4, verse 4, a passage we all know, there is one body. Whose body is it? Christ's. Who composed that body? You and I, those who are in Christ. When we've been baptized, we've been placed in Christ. We've been clothed with Christ. He surrounds us. He keeps us clean and pure. He works with us daily. You see that, that idea about what is said about in Ephesians about Christ as the head of the church? is important too. Notice some of the ideas. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, as we said, there's one body. But I want you to notice some more. 1 Corinthians deals with the problems of dissension in the congregation. If you remember, Paul wrote because the church were doing a lot of things that it should not be doing. Ephesians deals with that unity of the Jew and the Gentile. I like that particular idea today that we need, especially in our time. God does not divide people. He brings them together. He acknowledges each of us, regardless of where we were born, regardless of our skin color, regardless of our language, regardless of any other thing that we might, education or any other thing that we might use to separate people. He considers us all one. Paul, even in his sermon on, on the mount uh, uh, in Athens, to the philosophers there said, God created man of one blood. That's how he said, he, he, there's not the significant difference in God's mind. In Ephesians 2 and verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And again in chapter 3 and verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head. Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body and the edifying of itself in love. Did you get the concept he's saying? Christ is the head. A body without a head is no, of no use. 
No significant purpose. But the body's composed of many parts, as we've already talked about. And it's only when every part does its share, whatever we need to be doing, whatever we're capable of doing, whatever we can do in service to Christ. That's how we make itself known. These passages about the body of Christ as the church indicates that the church is more than just the sum of human parts. We often think that congregations exist because of individual men who are the elders, the leaders, the preachers, or whatever. No, no. They exist because of each of the members doing its part. That important. I, I, I wanted people to know when I was preaching. When I came to a new congregation and began to worship with them, I placed membership openly like everyone else had to. I wanted them to know that I'm just a member of the congregation, not special, not more important than anybody else, but someone who merely teaches the Word of God. Now, I want you to know that, that that's important. That's the, the idea that the sum of those human parts can make us work. The earthly and earthly identity, the church is the people, but it is the people of divine origin with the call of God, a supernatural basis in the redemptive work of Christ, the spiritual life from the Holy Spirit. But think with me of the family of God. Paul also said, did I turn something off? Must have. They're, they're family of God. Thank you. I'm, I must have hit something here. Paul also that said the house of God, which is the church of the living God, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Just think for a moment of the usage of the family images used in the New Testament. The household of God, which is the church of of the living God. The word house refers not only to a dwelling place, but also to, uh, also to dwellers in the building. The household or the family. This usage for the church is found not only in the verse that we've just read, but also in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begin with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And again in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, who is faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son, over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm to the end. That's Hebrews 3, verses 2 through 6. Whose house we are. We're the family of God. According to this family imagery, I want you to see, first of all, God's the Father over the house. Indeed, He's the source and pattern of 
of human fatherhood. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 15 tells us that, no question about it. I want you to understand as well that he's the source that, of human fatherhood. That's something I mentioned, but I want to go back to it just for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 3, 14 and 15, although there's one sense in which he's the father of all, God created all, he's the creator, so he, in that one sense, is the father of all. The usual biblical language speaks of him as father in relation to his spiritual children. Jesus taught the apostles when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Had they not been praying? He didn't say, teach us how to pray, but teach us to pray. And Jesus gave what's, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it began by our Father in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. Why? Because we're trying to stress the idea of the word Father. You see, there's access to Him by as Father by prayer. I don't know about you, but quite often, almost always, I approach God in prayer by naming Him as Father. And how thankful I've been in prayer for many, many times that I can come to Him as my Father and talk with Him. He's given us I think the greatest blessing we can have. And that's the ability, the opportunity, maybe I should say, to talk to God, talk to our Father any time of the day, under any kind of circumstance. Whether we're happy or whether we're bothered by something that's happening, we need to pray to our Father. To them he gives his love. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. To them he gives his fatherly provisions. In chapter 7 of Matthew and the, sermon on, uh, and the great sermon on the mount. He talks about that Jesus, uh, that God knows your needs before you ever say anything to him about them. And then again his discipline. We kind of uh, glide over Hebrews chapter 12 verses 4 through 11 which tells us that God's going to discipline us. We had fathers on earth that disciplined us. He's our father. He'll discipline us, test our faith from time to time and give us that kind of encouragement. And then in that description of the church as the household, the overseers of the church function as stewards, according to Titus chapter 1 and verse 7 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. They do that administering the affairs of the, uh, of the church on behalf of the Father, who is the head of the household. And incidentally, I, I, and I can't think of it often enough, but we ought to recognize that they're going to give an account for you and I on the day of judgment. They're overseers. God's put them in, in a position to rule over the church today. And there's another, another one I want you to see, another way of this family. The church 
is pictured in Ephesians chapter 5. And it's done in such a way that Paul is using the marriage relationship, the husband and wife relationship, to picture Christ in the church. We know Paul in another place speaks of presenting them as, as a chaste virgin to Christ as his wife. We know from the book of Revelation that the, the John was going to be shown the bride of Christ. It's important for us to think about that. You see, the imagery is to describe the relationship of God with his people instead of a husband and wife. And then it occurs frequently in the Old Testament prophets to use that. The Old Testament often spoke of Jerusalem as the virgin daughter of Zion. The bridal imaginers appropriated the New Testament as a description of Christ and the bridegroom, church and his bride. There's, a, there's some of us that not me, but there's some that have had to give up their earthly father in order to follow Jesus or in order to proclaim the gospel. Jesus made a promise that in this life they'll receive a hundredfold brothers and sisters and mothers and children. Did you notice he mentioned father there? He omitted father, I mean. He mentioned brothers and sisters and mothers and children. Mark 10, verse 19 and 20. Now all the way through to 30. These are brothers and sisters in the family of God. You see, they possess the same spirit of God that individually we do. Christians as sons and daughters. That reference to sonship, John uses the word son only when he's describing Jesus. Unlike Paul, Paul sometimes used the word son, but most often he used the plural, sons, for Christians. Galatians 3.26 First John confines the language of son to Christ and uses a different word for children or children of God. Even Satan recognized Jesus as the Son of God. You remember in, in, in Matthew chapter 3, 4, when he went into the, Jesus went into the wilderness, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan came to tempt him. Tempt him. You remember what Satan said? If you are the Son of God, command this stone that it may be made bread. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down. He's acknowledging the fact that He is the Son of God, knowing that Jesus claimed that and understanding that He is that. Peter's confession also. Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus asked the apostles, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they gave the names of several of the prophets and John or some of the others. And he said, but whom say you that I am? And they said, Peter immediately said, you're Christ, the son of the living God. 
Jesus blessed him for that. Uh, the centurion's confession at the cross. You remember after the crucifixion of Jesus, after he had did, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. I remember the parable of the wicked tenants who had rented a vineyard. The owner had sent some of his servants to receive the rent due. But they knew when, they, when he knew at last that when the heir comes, the heir is the Son of God. But he knew that he must do that. Or, I remember Jesus, the most impressive prayer to me is then that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his, his arrest. But he said, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, Father. Wanting some other way to provide salvation for us. Jesus was declared the Son of God at His birth. Accomplished by the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. His Sonship was declared again at His baptism. When he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like, the, like a dove and lighted upon him, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The title, Son of God, is especially associated after Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension. All the children of God are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, sons are heirs. If we can be called sons of God, as Paul referred to uh, those who are following Christ, then we're heirs. Equal heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. In the parable of the wicked sons, that was shown to be the case. God's children are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Child of God's an heir of God, according to Galatians 4, verse 5 through 7. And because of this identification, we can see the importance of the church. Can we go back in our mind and think for a moment about the identification of the church? How can we identify it? Is it by some synod that a group of men have gotten together? No. Is it by some written document that man has provided in order to give you the, the identification marks of the church? No. It is the Word of God. What we've been determining is Jesus is the head. You and I are the body. Jesus lives in us and we live in Him. Bow with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you for the blessings you've given us. We're so thankful for the fact that we can call you Father. We're so thankful for the fact that Jesus can be in us and you and us and the Holy Spirit in us. We're so thankful that we can know that kind of joy and happiness. Be with us, Father. Guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be away next week and, Lord willing, 
Brother Mike will fill in for me <laughs> next week.